welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome adventurers to episode 66 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a special side quest episode featuring Luna Rush from Dead Alive Games. Hey, this is King Scott. And this is just Patrick. And thank you so much all for joining us today. Scott, it's been a busy week, man. We've got a meetup coming on. Well, I guess by the time this goes live, that will have passed. You know what's funny? I was editing last episode. I don't know if you've listened to it yet, but I had to put in an editor's note because you were like, yes, and come join us at the meetup. And I said, no, that's already happened. (laughs) It had not. I got got caught in the time warp somewhere. Yes, the podcasting world is a strange world of time anomalies. Well, but, th- uh, but hey, it's a wonderful world to be part of. That it is. We will be uh, talking about our meetup next week. Next episode, though, we'll be uh, be recapping some of the goings-ons. But I think everything lines up. It is synchronized that when I say this, it's true. Leviathan Wilds is live on Kickstarter. Go back, give that episode a listen, and check this game out. You get a lot of game for a good price. Oh, most definitely. I mean, having that spiral bound board, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many things you can do in there, so many options to play, so many different ways to play that game. It's such a unique universe that they're building, and I can't wait to see what happens with it. Editors, note Leviathan Wilds has been postponed. The current Kickstarter has been canceled. We can't wait to see what they come back with. And I can't wait to see what happens with today's game, Lunar Rush. Folks, if you're tuning in because you wanted to hear about Lunar Rush, you don't normally listen to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, we do invite you to hit that subscribe button on your podcast player app. We we like to think we're getting reasonable at this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We we don't sound as unsmart as we used to. So, I mean, that's, that's something there. We used to sound very unsmart. (laughs) <laughs> yes, we we do words good. So, Scott, we're talking Lunar Rush today. This is one that we came about because uh, Will Brown, the hungry gamer who we've... Boy, we've mentioned in that name a lot. Uh, sort of like I know. The, uh, I like brother. to call him the enabler now. Uh, enabler Brown. He uh, he messaged and he said, hey, guys, uh, we're working with Dead Alive Games, who Will has uh, quite the relationship with. He's trying to help them produce Lunar Rush, and he's got a connection to it because his brother is the designer. How cool is that? So we played it on TTS. We met up with them at Origins. We sat down. We got mm-hmm. our chance to play Origins. I can't wait to play it again at Gen Con. Listeners, you'll be able to play Lunar Rush at Gen Con, too. That's sort of how this came about, and we're looking to give it a breakdown today. Yes, it was a great time getting a chance to play this. I heard you talking about this after you played it on TTS. I didn't get a chance to. And getting able to sit down and play the game, I could see why you were excited about it. it <laughs> oh, it's... Yeah. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of... Let me not go into this right now. What do you say we break it down into a little, quick little 8-bit here? Ah, How's that sound? You got it. I'll do the walkthrough. All right. Designed by Skippy Brown and published by Dead Alive Games, coming to Kickstarter soon. Lunar Rush is a simultaneous play Euro game that challenges one to four players to most efficiently harvest lunathist and lunarium crystals from the moon and maximize their profits when selling them back to Earth. At its core, Lunar Rush combines bidding, worker placement, and market efficiency. For sake of today's walkthrough, let's get a visual with the setup. The main board depicts Earth in one corner and the moon in the opposite. Between the two are lines depicting routes that the players will be sending ships, either with workers and goods to build up their moon base, or with harvested goods to send them back from the moon to Earth. Each player receives a player board which depicts the modules at their disposal. Think of this as a board of personal worker placement spots for your astronauts on the moon. Players will also receive bidding cards and ship cards, as well as some starting resources. The game is played over seven rounds, so let's have a look at how a round's going to play out. At the beginning of each round, there's a bidding phase. Players simply select one of their bid cards numbered 1 through 5 and place it face down. Players will then reveal their bids and lose points according to their bid number. The player who bid the most will then get to pick one of the routes either to the moon or back to Earth and place one of their ship cards on that lane. Then the next player does the same and so on until each player has placed two ships. 
Now, this is a very important element of Lunar Rush because the routes all act differently. Whether to the moon or back to Earth, there's an option for a fast, medium, or slow lane. The fast lane means that your ship will arrive at its destination this turn, but it can't carry very much. The medium lane will arrive at its destination the next turn, but it can carry a bit more. And finally, the slow lane will take two turns to arrive at its destination, but it'll be able to carry a lot of goods on its journey. After bidding in ship placement, players then get to choose resources to take to the moon, and arriving ships will drop off their goods and or astronauts. Simultaneously then, each player gets to run their moon base. This is simply a worker placement game using your own astronauts on your moon base board. The goods that you've shipped up from Earth, though, will allow you to build new modules, essentially an upgrade card that makes any given worker placement spot better. A quick example might be that a basic ore mine produces one ore for an allocated astronaut, but when upgraded, that same astronaut will produce two ore. After all players have finished upgrading their moon base, placing their workers, and collecting resources, they may place any goods that they wish to sell onto their ship going back to Earth. Obviously, the fast ship's going to get there this turn, whereas the others are going to take a bit longer, but again, they'll be able to carry more. The goods that arrive back at Earth can be sold for points based on their market value, which progressively gets lower as more of the same type of good is sold. The next round then begins, and after the seventh round, players add up their scores, calculate some final scoring, and the high score is the winner. Now, as always, our walkthroughs are meant to give you a quick idea of what's going on in the game, and there's always more than we outline. In the case of Lunar Rush, the game also includes factions for player asymmetry, challenge cards meant to handicap a more experienced player, gold modules, which are community-available, powerful upgrades to your moon base, but they're limited to what's dealt at the start of play, and even Wonders, which act as large strategic targets that, if built, can score a ton of endgame points. In any event, I hope this walkthrough gives you a sense of how the game's going to play out when it hits your table. So how did it fare on our table? Well, let's find out in a special SideQuest 8-bit breakdown of Lunar Rush. The 21st century. Humans have returned to the moon. In the year 2148, Two new resources are discovered, a crystal named Lunathist and the metal Lunarium. Both possess unique properties beneficial to medicine, space travel, and technology, and both admired for their beauty. Earth's four major conglomerates immediately invest trillions into base construction near the richest veins. In these bases, the materials are refined and sent back to Earth for immense profit. Within the year, a new gold rush is underway. A ruthless, relentless race to mine and sell Lunathist and Lunarium. Ooh, nice flavor read, Scott. Mmm, tasty. <laughs> I'm known for my flavor. Uh, oh, it, just cut that out, Patrick. I don't want to. I don't, don't play yeah, that. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't. Adventures, we like to break down our review games into an 8-bit breakdown. Now, this is a bit of a first impression. I've played the game a couple of times. Scott, you had the one playthrough at Origins. We did play a complete Correct. game, but there are little modules. There's extra, like, goal cards that you can put into the game. There's Wonders, which we haven't really experienced that enough to say that this is a review. But we're going to call it a first impression review. Does that that seem fair? I, I That seems like a fair way of putting it, yes. We'll give it the 8-bit breakdown treatment, starting with bit number Number one, the art and the components of Lunar Rush. What do you think, Scott? Well, the artwork is kind of simple, and it's very easy to decipher, but that doesn't take away from it. It doesn't really need a lot of splash, a lot of pizzazz on there mm -hmm. to make the game good. The size of the cubes, I like that because the white cubes, the habitat cubes are going to be something bigger, so they're actually bigger, so you know right away. This one counts as two spaces. This one, smaller one, counts as one space. Right, right. So it's not one of those things where you have to just take it on, this one is this, this one is this. You actually physically can see the change in it. Yeah, they made it easy to figure out what's going on. Uh, we'll say intuitive components. And some of these are subject to change. Right now, all of the resources are represented by cubes in the prototype yes. copy that we had the opportunity to play. But in talking with Skippy, we came to find that they're looking at maybe, okay, we're going to make the gold look like, a, a, you know what I mean, make each resource mm -hmm. look like that resource, kind of like in your side upgrade. Now, I don't know 
how far they're going to go with that. But there is some some hints that the resources might change from just being cubes. I don't know that they need to. I think the game's fine as it is, but man, that would be cool. But hey, you're tipping our hand right now because uh, you told them that we already talked to Skippy. And I mean, we can only keep Skippy in the room for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it down back there, Skippy. <laughs> nah, Adventures, you know what's coming. We we will have Skippy on today's show to, to share a whole bunch. Let's move to bit number two. Let's go to theme and immersion. We've got we've got an economic race to produce goods and get them back to Earth. I should have mentioned in the art and components, your board depicts Earth in one corner, and then it's going to depict the moon in the other. And as you heard in the walkthrough, you've got these three pathways up to the moon and these three pathways down. The big differentiator from the pathways is the bidding system for which one you're yes. going to get. And that determines the speed, how quickly you're getting things up to the moon or back to Earth. And that's also going to determine the amount of things that you can get onto a ship going up or coming back. And that theme, it goes from on the board to in your head because you have to weigh that decision when you're bidding for which track you super duper want. I thought that they brought out the theme really. The game is Lunar Rush. You are, think Gold Rush, California Gold Rush. Think yes. the Moon Rush, right? That comes into play with that bidding system and how quickly, how efficiently you're playing the game. What do you think? Theme and immersion. Yeah, definitely the bidding I, I really like. It's not something where you actually have just a hand of cards. Well, you do have a hand of cards, one through five. That's what you're going to bid. But whenever you bid, you're actually taking those victory points off the board. So you actually see what you're bidding. So you really have that visual aid there to take a look at it and think, all right, I see where this person is. I see where Patrick is. How much do I want to do? So you have all these different calculations going through your mind. What's going to be the most advantageous for you mm -hmm. to use? I think that is a great little thing there. I really enjoy that uh, in the game because it really does make you understand what you're actually bidding. It's what not the cost just a, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just like, well, I'm going to play this five card this turn because I have a five card. Okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to play this five card. Oh, wait, it took five points away from me. Mm -hmm. Oh, so you really do feel that that cost hits you whenever it comes up. I also like when a game gives you a sense of progression, like you feel more powerful as the game goes on. And that's going to happen here. What with those upgraded modules on your moon, uh, moon base, moon facility. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my moon base. You've all been chosen to be part of my elite moon union. We're going to call it a sure. <laughs> You have the, the base board where you have all of these little worker placement spots that you can convert your goods and, and uh, you have to feed your, your workers and whatnot. I like that you can upgrade those with that stack of upgrade cards. That's not only, A, going to give you a lot of variability, some asymmetry from one player to the next, but it also makes you, by the end of turn three, turn four, turn five, you feel way more powerful because of that. You also get a nice fluctuating market in this game. It gives you a sense of, like, economic change as the game evolves. This game, we're focusing on this resource, so I'm going to go for that resource. But next game might be totally different. I like when a game does that. Well, I, I like this because you look at it that it makes you feel more powerful whenever you have those upgrades. Me, yes. I usually feel much weaker whenever I see that everyone else has those upgrades and I don't. So it's a completely different feel for me. But I do see what you mean there. Whenever you build those up and you see that you have that addition, even whenever it, this is a stupid, stupid thing here, but just in my mind, whenever you see that card shift a little bit and you see that it's on top of two other cards or something, I did something. That's, yes. that's a good feeling there whenever you see that. That feeling of accomplishment. Yes. Scott, bit number three. Is this game complex? Let's talk about the complexity. For a Euro with about a million decisions, Lunar Rush, I honestly, I found it kind of easy to understand. You got two main portions of the game. You've got the bidding for the ship lanes. Easy peasy. Nothing out of the ordinary here. You're bidding your points to pick your lanes. And then the worker placement of modules on the moon. Also, pretty easy once you understand what's mm -hmm. going on. You can upgrade those modules, as we said, uh, to a second tier, to a third tier. But that's depicted with a simple cost on the card. And then you just place that card right over top yeah. of your module. So you're not going to confuse which one you have. 
I think that the complexity comes in the strategy that you opt to pursue, not in the rule set. And I think that's a sweet spot that games need to aspire to achieve. What do you think for complexity? Well, this takes me back to whenever Planet Fitness was just starting out, they had a commercial. Oh, hold on. I need to know where you're going. with. You're bringing in Planet Fitness? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just bear with me. This is a big game of the hunk that they have in that commercial of, I pick things up and put them down. I pick things up and put them down. <laughs> That's what you do in this game. You pick things up and you put them down. But how fast you do it or how slow you do it, how efficiently you do it, that's mm-hmm. where all the meat comes into this because there's so much into this deciding, do you want to pick things up fast and put them down fast? Kind of nickel and dime your way through the game? Or do you want to take your time and get up there and get a lot more up there? And like really build up your your uh, stamina and build things up as you're building things on the moon. I know it's a weird thing to go there with the Planet Fitness idea, but that's what it is. You pick things up, you put them down on the moon. It's that simple, but the things that go along with it, what you're going to do with those things you put down, that's where the huge part of this game comes from. For those who are unaware, Planet Fitness is a gym. It's a gym in the United States. They franchise out. I think they're U.S. nationwide. I don't know if they're worldwide, but our podcast is. It's a gym. But the premise of the gym is we're not the gym where people carry around the big gallon jugs of protein shake and <laughs> wear like the, the the muscle tees and start lifting, you know, bench pressing 300 pounds. Like there's no grunting. And they actually have an alarm. Like if, you're, yes. if you drop your weights or if you're doing things that like we'll say your muscle head would do they actually have an alarm that'll set off so i I guess they're trying to be inviting and welcoming to like your average joe got a little uh, extra belly i'm not looking to get jacked i just want to work off 10 pounds that's who they're appealing to they call the 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 heavy lifter i think it says lunk they have the lunk alarm alarm. scott have you ever set off the lunk alarm no but i've been there when it did go off one time it scared the crap out of me (laughs) I think before the end of this year, we need to hear the end of an episode level up. I want your level up to be that you set off the lung alarm. You have a mission now. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we'll go together. Right. Maybe, maybe we'll actually start a YouTube channel and that'll be our thing. Is just going Let's and setting get off lung this alarms. thing back on track here. <laughs> <laughs> Bit number four, the rule book and the learning curve. The rule book is still in development. And to this day, I haven't actually seen it. So we can't actually come in. It's not on BGG. Uh, spoiler alert, we're doing this 8-bit breakdown prior to me doing the walkthrough. Will has graciously sent me a copy of the rulebook that is in in progress being developed. Yes. If it's anything like Omicron Protocol, though, the other Dead Alive Games rulebook, I think it's going to be spot on and easy to understand. For sake of this bit for today, we're going to talk learning curve. I think most players are fully going to understand the game within two or three turns of their first play. Oh, I, I definitely agree with that because it's it's a very intuitive way of playing the game. You look at it, you get things up to the moon, you get things down from the moon. It's that simple. My mm-hmm. biggest thing was that I had a hard time getting my head wrapped around this a little bit more because I'm used to having my little bank of resources and that's what I'm going to be moving. But mm-hmm. this one here, you just have a ship on Earth. I'm going to take these resources and move them up there. I guess there's two different calculations that you have to make. Part of that learning curve, whenever I think learning curve, you know, we're thinking how long is it going to take to understand the game? But then also how long does it take to get good at the game, to improve? Mm-hmm. And there's aside from the bidding, which is a huge part of the game, there's a lot of calculating, okay, what do I need to take up and how quickly do I need to take up to the moon? And whenever you combine those two variables, that is a big decision. And then what's coming back to Earth? What am I going to develop? Where am I going to put my workers to develop it? And am I going to send it back fast, medium, or slow? That's another big decision. And then you throw in the other players and holy smoke. So a simple premise, the game is not hard to understand. But to, like you said, sort of wrap your mind around all these resources to choose from, how quickly, how slowly, and what's everyone else going to do? Learning curve, it's not difficult to understand the game, but man, it's going to be a long time before you get good at it. I think what I'm trying to say here is that I'm used to having that little bunch of resources that I have. So this is like a learning curve thing here. So I'm used to having that. 
Mm-hmm. But you don't have this. You just have one big Earth where you can take resources and ship it up to the moon. Once you get it to the moon, then you can create different resources. Then you have your stuff that you built that you can play with. Now I'm on the, the ready terms. It's that first step that always threw me off on this game when we were playing it. I'm like, I should have this over here taking from my stuff, not just from this general pool of resources. So that was what was a, a thing there with like the learning curve for me to get used to it and get get over that. But yeah, learning curve. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying that it's going to be very, very simple to pick up this game. Scott, bit number five is where we look at where is the meat of the game. Every game's got that one aspect or area where you're, where the brain, the gears start turning and you just get sunk into trying to play this game well. Where's the meat in Lunar Rush? Bidding. <laughs> well, yes, yes, that's that's going to be number one. I agree. I agree. That Well, I think that's the one thing that hinges on the whole game here. When you're going to bid certain things, how many points you're going to get rid of. Once you get from there, then I think the next biggest thing is what are you going to develop on the moon? Yeah, that little worker placement resources. That's going to be one of those really, really big decisions to make Mm -hmm. which direction you want to go. Similar to Beyond the Sun with the tech tree. Do I want to go this way and follow the tech tree going this way? But once you're on it, you're kind of stuck there. So you can either be able to maximize what you get out of it. This here, you start doing one thing and uh, building up one sort of resource. You see someone else building resources. All of a sudden, you're like, crap. Are they going to get to sell them first? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, I should have done something different. So (laughs) a lot of different things had happened on the moon are a big part of the meat of the game. I think you nailed it. So I'll just add the base mechanisms of the game. If we think of that like a tree trunk and the strategic routes as the branches with tactical decisions in the game comprising the, you know, the little twigs and leaves that sprout from the branches. Lunar Rush is a pretty big oh, tree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, There's definitely. a relatively simple rule set that you can just go wild with. There's all kinds of directions you can you can go with it. And I think that's why there's a lot of meat on this game. Oh, most definitely. And thinking about this, thinking about meat, I mean, you think about meals and that goes back to, I'm going to go back for seconds. And that makes me think of replayability and variability. <laughs> Scott, that was that was top-notch podcast. Oh, Bit number my six, goodness. Replayability and variability. I think you're right. I think we got into this a bit in Where's the Meat? There, There's some gold module cards, okay, where all players have access to them, but once they're purchased, they're gone. Like, only one player can have a specific gold module. They're, when I say gold module, it's the module cards, and everybody has their own deck of module cards, and that is, that's symmetric. Everybody's got the same options for what they want to upgrade to. However, there are gold modules that there's only one of this one. There's only one of that one. There's a handful each game, depending on the player count. Once somebody snags one of them, well, it's gone. It is theirs. These are significant cards. They're not simple little changes to your strategy. They can change how you're going to pursue the game. But you could win without ever acquiring one. We've got that as a huge variable. Obviously, a game with bidding is going to introduce genuine player interaction that's going to change the game every time. Every time. Mm Mm-hmm. You got this combination of speed with getting resources to the moon for modules combined with efficiency and deciding what to produce, what to send back. I think the balance of that aspect of the game with the bidding, with the shifting market values of the goods, I think that makes for a game that's going to evolve enough each time you play that even if you don't have the gold modules, even if you build the same modules every time, there's still enough to keep you coming back without that extra sprinkling, that extra seasoning on the top. I've played it three times now, Scott. And honestly, most games, I feel like I've carved out like a primary strategy and identified a few alternates by my third, fourth play. I haven't even scratched the surface of Lunar Rush. I think it's replayable and variable because I want to replay it again. It's on my brain. That's a good sign. Yeah, and um, you just made my brain hurt a little bit because playing it only one time, you forget about some things. I completely forgot about the market with the fluctuating costs of everything and the prices of all that stuff. That's a whole other aspect that goes into this game that makes everything so variable. And each time you play it, it's going to be different. You're never going to have the same prices at the same time. And that's where the Euro part of this game comes into play. 
your replayability and variability come from how you play the game. It gives you a simple rule set it to make your decisions, but that's where it all starts. It gives the whole thing like you go from A to B to C. Go play. But how you get from A to B to C is infinite. How many different ways you can Absolutely. get there. Absolutely. Scott, we have a relationship with Will, and we have a previous relationship with Dead Alive Games. To this point, we have fluffed this game up. We are big fans, obviously, but that doesn't mean they get away from bit number seven, where we look at downsides of a game. So, let's start here. If you don't like bidding systems, blind bidding in this case, where you don't know what other folks are going to be bidding, if you don't like bidding, this game is not for you. There is a big risk-reward each round based on what you have bid. Now, it's not like you're out of the game for having come up short on a bid. Like, you still have options. You, have, you still have things that you can do. Mm-hmm. But I know some gamers that just don't like that stress. I personally like bidding. It's it's a good time. But I could definitely see, and I've heard a lot of people go on, they do not like bidding systems whenever it comes to games. They want to have full control of all their decisions. And this mm-hmm. just throws that little bit of chaos in there. Some are going to call this an upside, but outside of the bidding system, the player interaction, it's pretty indirect. You you influence other players by beating them to the market. That's the that's the one other area. Well, the two other areas. You influence other players by beating them to the market because if you sell metal first, the sell value for metal is going to go down. So if I see that Scott has six metal on a ship that's going to be arriving to Earth in two turns, he just loaded up a slow ship back to Earth. I can on my turn then I'm going to load one metal on my fast ship that I won in this bid. And I'm just going to get it to Earth real quick just to make metal sell for less. So your six metal that would have sold for $30 now only sells for 25 well, points. Instead of getting 30 points, you're only going to get 25. So I made a simple play. I got six points for my one metal. What? I'm getting caught up in math. <laughs> you get my point. <laughs> yes. You get my point. Uh, also, you're not going to like, you're not going to be directly attacking each other. You're not destroying buildings. You're not sending out the armada. But again, I think for a lot of folks, while I like those kind of games where you're directly con, you have conflict mm-hmm. with other players, you're negotiating because you want them to leave you alone. Like I like games where you can pick on each other. This doesn't do that. It's, it's indirect. But I think for a lot of folks, that's probably an upside. We've all seen the Facebook posts like, oh, I can't play this game with my brother because he gets angry when his buildings get destroyed. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, I I agree completely on that. This is weird because it's hard for me to really see a lot of downsides with this because the bidding aspect and the indirect play are things that I really do enjoy. I like those kind of things here where I'm kind of in my head making those plans. If you're not one of those people that like that, this is not going to be one of those games that scratch that uh, acquisition disorder for you to pick it up. So you have to kind of go into it looking at what your strengths are, what your likes are before you go into this game. Maybe another one to include is our two-player game that we did at Origins that Will was demoing for us. He said, okay, you guys are playing with two. I'm going to throw in the AI to play Mm -hmm. as a third player because it makes the game better. Now, we didn't, we haven't done directly one on one and just play a two player game. I will say throwing in the AI, it was not burdensome in any capacity. You, you flip a card to determine what the AI bid and then you flip to see what it sold. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't have to manage its, its player board, nothing. It's kind of like a, like an automa. You just flip the card and it says, okay, make these simple adjustments. Easy, easy. Right. But if you can't stand the idea of having an artificial third player in your two player games, and you're looking at playing this exclusively two-player, uh, that's a stretch. <laughs> but I suppose that could that could be a uh, downside as well. Scott, let's move to bit number eight. Was Lunar Rush fun, and who's it for? Well, as you can tell, yes, it was fun. I enjoyed my play of it. Even though it was one play, it was at Origins. There was a lot of noise going on. There was a lot of yelling through face masks. So there was so much cool- noise. There was a lot of things going on to take away from me playing this game and really getting into it, but I did enjoy it. And like I said in the last bit, I'm one of those people that I kind of like that indirect thing. I like the bidding system. I like the idea of fluctuating markets and all that kind of stuff. So if you're like me, and hopefully after 66 episodes, you can kind of figure out if I like a game, 
you might like that game. If Patrick likes a game, you'll like that game. So hopefully, if you're like me and you know what kind of things I like, if you like those same type of games, you're going to enjoy this game. What do you think? Was it fun? And who do you think this is for? Was it fun? Absolutely. It's fun for sure. And I said, I'm still thinking about the game. And that's usually a good sign. You've got a ton of strategies to explore. It's satisfying when you make that big sale. I always say I want a game to make me feel clever and powerful. This does both of those things. It gives you a true sense of progression as you get to build new modules and you get to see your capabilities expand. I really like Lunar Rush. Now, who's it for? If you love a good Euro game, this is probably going to be for you, but Euros often get a couple of stigmatisms. One, we've all heard someone say, oh, it's a soulless Euro. And that's a term that we give for a Euro game that has you pushing cubes with a, a theme pasted on, right? Lunar Rush does have some elements of trading this cube for that cube. It does, uh, especially whenever you're doing the worker placement portion. Okay, I'll trade in these four to get this one so that I can load it. It has some of that element. But the race to do things quicker or bigger or more efficiently, it brought out the theme a bit. I didn't find this to be soulless. Mm -hmm. Now, the other stigmatism that Euros often get is, air quotes, multiplayer solitaire. Oh, yes. And that's one that we give to Euro games where other players, they basically don't need to be there. Lunar Rush avoids this stigmatism through the use of the bidding system. The game is subtly, very subtly ruthless, <laughs> where you have an opportunity to indirectly interact uh, through the, the market, but directly interact in the bidding phase to hinder somebody else's plan. It, it's not going to wreck their turn or anything, but it's going to hinder them just enough. That's a satisfying injection of player interaction. Well, it's kind all of funny all, whenever you say that, because I never thought about this, about hate shipping doing that just putting <laughs> like one metal on hate there. shipping yes yes i never thought about that until you brought that up well adventurers that's our thoughts on lunar rush enough from us we've got steven skippy brown in studio let's take it over to steven we're gonna we're gonna grill him what do you want to do some grilling scott it's summertime it's time for grilling that uh, sounds good to me get out the dogs and get the burgers hey adventurers it's always a great time. We get a chance to sit down and talk with any designers that we have here. And today we got a really special one. Skippy Brown, all about his new game coming out, Lunar Rush. Skippy, how's it going? It's going great. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, hey, thank you so much. It means a lot to take your time. Uh, I know your time is probably a lot more valuable than ours. So thank you very much for the time that you're sparing with us. We joined the Zencaster meet here, and you notice he was, boom, Johnny on this. We got started before our time. That's, I like that. <laughs> if you're not five minutes early, you're late. You're late. Thank you. Thank you. What's <laughs> uh, the thing that we always have to Renaissance Festival? If you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, it's never to be. <laughs> so, Skippy, tell us, where did it all begin? How did you get into tabletop gaming? Give us the origin story. So I'll just say the earliest I remember tabletop gaming was actually the Hunger Gamer and I, for those who don't know, he's, he's my younger brother. We were playing Warhammer 40k Epic. It was a big box set. It was Space Marines and Orcs. He had Orcs. I had the Space Marines. We would play on this little coffee table in the basement. I, looking back on, I don't think it was fair, the two teams. I mean, I was older and I always won, but looking back, I don't know if they were really balanced. Pitiful paint jobs. Almost everything was in metallic colors because that was cool. Oh, heck, it was 10 millimeter models there too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it was, uh, that's, that's the earliest I remember. We would play that against each other. And that was the earliest tabletop I can think of. You know, most people start with Monopoly or sorry, you're starting with Warhammer Epic. <laughs> well, tabletop wise, I mean, board game wise, so I separate the two to me, you know, tabletop got involved in miniature mm -hmm. board games. Don't board games. I'll say, you know, we did do the sorry and the trouble and the parcheesy, but the one that was different. I remember playing as a kid and this one was stocks and bonds. My dad uh, was in that field and there was this game stocks and bonds. It had a grease board that they would write the stock prices on you buy and sell and the, then the next turn the prices would go up and down and you buy and sell and it was very different game and we enjoyed it we played it fairly often you know some people have to wake up in the morning and get dressed and go do that that's a job that is a job not a game I like that. 
All right, Skippy. So how did this evolve? You get started with a game like Warhammer Epic. Have you have you been a gamer your entire adult life? I mean, something had to lead you to Lunar Rush at the end of the tunnel. Give us a little bit of that time in the tunnel. Well, so I would say I kind of fell out of gaming for the most part during the college years, a little busy with other things, but then got back into it afterwards. Heavy uh, mech warrior and mage knight, not the board game, but the click game. You the know, actual kind of cross Yep, the collectible one kind of crossed between miniatures and and board gaming in a way. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Did that for years. Uh, led to other miniature games. Malifaux, I did 1.5 and 2.0. Adventurers and then, can't see this, but Scott is like raising the roof <laughs> over there in his seat here at all these tabletop minis games. Go and, ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. I like now it. on miniatures, uh, Omicron Protocol, which is part of the way I met Absolutely. Bernie Really kind of with uh, with COVID, not wanting to go and do as much miniature stuff, it kind of led to doing a little more board game. Mm-hmm. And that led to, I don't know, I had some creative ideas on things maybe I could do that are different in board games. Uh, most games treat space poorly or incorrectly, I'll say. You know, a lot of games have the ships fly like boats. Whichever direction <laughs> they're pointing is the direction they go. Well, and, yeah, uh, that's physics. and uh, i just wanted to start bringing in little bits of little bits of more realism some concept in each one as i did it and lunar rush is my third game third attempt at making something that people can have a chance to buy and that's kind of how we got to here you know, Skip, you said this is your third game, but I, we did our research. Scott, you and I, we, we were checking out BGG. I didn't see anything else on there. This this is your first going-to-be-published game, isn't it? It is. And, and any other designers out there, you know, it, it's first one may not hit. First one maybe maybe will get picked up later. But, you know, keep keep going at it. You know, do your best with the game and then move on to another game and maybe the next one will be successful. My first one is a pretty heavy, crunchy programmer game. It's a little bit of a niche audience. I think mm-hmm. I need to have a bigger name to get a publisher to pick that one up. My my second game uh, available to be published, if there are any publishers out there, is a space racing game using cool drifting realistic mechanics where you fly around the board. And I've tried to take care of most of the issues with uh, racing games that there are right. there, of lack of choice or uh, no real way to, to catch up or anything else, uh, all organic. This is my third game. I'm continuing to make them. No, I have to think that in the space racing game, you move in the direction you're pointing, don't you? No, you keep going in the direction you were going. Uh-huh. And then you can point different directions, but you still go the direction you were pointing. So it sounds like the theme came first with respect to Lunar Rush, didn't it? Generally, each of them is the core space thing I want to I want to stress is what comes up first with each of them. And with Lunar Rush, the real space aspect is that there are different orbits to get to the moon. And depending on whether you want to be there faster, you'll be able to only take, you take less stuff, or you could take a slower orbit for the same amount of fuel and take more stuff. And so knowing that was the genesis of, of that mechanic of the game. The other thing is there are things I like to see in games. I, I like a lot of simultaneous play. I have a 12 year old daughter and she doesn't like to wait on games. Like, why would she wait on game? Everything's instant access for her. So, and I understand that, you know, uh, permadeath, right? Permadeath's not a thing in games that much anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so we got to move forward. We got to make more interesting games. You talk a lot about space. There could be a number of things you could do. Like you said, the space racing you could do with chariots racing, or you could do with different things like that. But you really focus on space. Is there any certain reason why you focus on that area? Well, I've always loved space. As a child, I mean, I, I went to space camp. I went to space academy. Oh, wow. You know, so I've always loved space. Uh, I work in the space industry, have for my whole adult life. I went to school in, in the space engineering fields. So it, it's always been something I enjoy, something I work in. It just flows into my games. I rarely feel like I'm the smartest person in the room. Right now, I'm certain 
I am not the smartest person in the. <laughs> Anytime Scott and I record, I'm pretty sure I'm not the smartest person in the room. But now I am sure. <laughs> I am positive. Skippy, this turned into the development of Lunar Rush. Now, I can't imagine, you know, I get it in my mind. Somebody's going to develop a game. And, and Scott, I don't know if you've done this, but I've had some ideas, right? I'll jot them down in a notebook. Oh, and sure, I, yeah. I haven't gone as far as to like make up uh, little like notes and put them in the card sleeves and see if it would function. At some point, you had to either take a pen to paper or sit down and start developing this game. Give us a, give us a brief idea of what developing Lunar Rush looked like. One thing I'll say interesting with Lunar Rush is I never made a physical edition. It was all done in TTS mm-hmm. uh, for this particular game. I can't say that for any of the others, but again, the time period that this was occurring at is development. It just made more sense to do it only in TTS. With that, though... You know, I, I get the idea, I, I put some things on paper, I throw it in TTS, and then I play it myself. I just try to see if I can go through turns. And mm-hmm. often I can't. There, There's, oh, this doesn't work. This doesn't make sense. <laughs> I thought this would work, but these two things now are in the same place at the same time, and it, it just, it's hideous. Sure. Um, and so it's always ends up for me being a couple of plays, just myself, trying to make sure I get all the big rocks out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, uh, some of my games... I mean, they take some time. They, they have problems. They are on the back burner for a while. This one actually came together fairly, fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I got through that in a, a couple of weeks and then threw enough together to start having a, a TTS play test and, you know, it continued to evolve, but relatively quickly and no major, major issues. And I'll say this, the publisher Dead Alive have continued to evolve it in positive ways. I had it at eight turns. I arbitrarily picked eight turns, seemed like a good number, mm-hmm. and they thought maybe seven was better. And I think they're absolutely right. Having played it at seven, there's more pressure, there's more of a rush in it, and uh, I see what it, you did there. It's just more exciting. <laughs> How long have you been working on this game? Because I know we played the physical copy, one of the few people that got a chance to, and it was great at Origins, but. How long did you take to get to that point? I mean, it's it, it can't be something. I mean, we figured out you are the smartest person in this room right now. That's been established. So it wasn't something that you just sat down and knocked it out. How long of a process was behind coming up with the whole idea and putting everything together? I started the folder with the idea and everything else in December of 2020. Continue to develop it. And then in the summer of 2021 is when Dead Alive Games signed it. And then they have continued to to develop it. And, and they've really kept me involved. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's my, my first game. So I don't know how much other times I'll get to be involved, but they have kept me involved in the process, bounce things off of me, help me understand where they're coming from. Why did I pick things? So they make sure they don't do something that undoes something I intentionally did for a good reason. Sure. And so they've been developing it since... So last summer, leading into now, where we're, we're about to have the kickstart. That's a great thing to hear because I know myself, I never really take that consideration of designers putting games out there and publishers picking them up where it gets to the point where they might be just closed off and not allowed to do it. And that's great that you still have so much input to it that you're able to still see this idea germinating into this great game then. It is. And, and I mean, it's it's also exciting as I kind of get to see it grow up in a way. The other day, I joined in a, a TTS game of it after the game had already started, and I missed one of the newer rules that have been put in. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's evolving faster than I know and growing up, right? So your little kid, you know exactly what they do every single thing. Once they can drive, you're lucky if you know what state they're in at any given time. So <laughs> so it, it's definitely growing up and becoming its, its thing greater than just me doing it, a whole little team working on it, uh, all these ideas coming together, a lot of play tests, a lot of input, really has made a, a item greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. I had to say, when Will and I were playing it on TTS, I think it was Bernie popped on and said, hey, how are we doing? And Will, are you keeping track of the stats? Like he has, He's written down everything. And at the end of the game, he told me, he's like, just so you know, I made sure I only ever picked a four or a five bidding card to see how that, like he's trying all sorts of different strategies. Like, trying to break the game 
if you will. And, and I think that's kind of cool that you have have this team that's not just playing the game and enjoying it, but trying to play it in different ways. And, you know, what if someone takes this approach? Does that ruin it in some way? Is the game solvable? And uh, it, it sounds like there's a team making sure that this will continue to have variation game after game without having one single solution, one way to play. I still think going slow is the way. You got to take those slow routes early, darn it. So, so, so <laughs> you know, Will always tries to break my games. That's, that's his first goal is he comes in he's like, how can I completely break this on you? I'm like, stop, just, I'm not at a stage yet. Just look. But uh, no, he, he's always up for trying to break my games as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. <laughs> Though, do you worry about the slow route? The two things I'll say with that one is we had one game where someone was taking a slow route all the time and it, they were getting ahead of us a little bit. We were suffering a little bit, but then we can just outbid them. Because if you both bid five, you can't keep it the whole time. So get up right. there and take it from them, number one. That's a good point. And number two, we, we have adjusted a little bit. There are two adjusts from, I, I don't know when y'all played, but one, the upright up root is now nine, not 10. Okay. And uh, also now, although very costly, you can make the white cubes on the moon. Oh, you know what they that was in the Origins copy. It wasn't on the TTS copy when we played. We did get that at Origins, though. Yeah. So so I think there was something there. I think that there was a slight, slight advantage to just keep taking the long route up. I think whatever slight advantage there was, which, again, could have been countered by bidding anyway, um, sure. I think has been dealt with quite well. We played the game. We've seen TTS. We've seen the actual physical copy at Origins. I really want to know when we can start just here, take my money. Yeah. When can I give you uh, money? (laughs) And get this game. So I know it's going to be coming Kickstarter. What can you tell us about that? So they have have announced that it will be uh, kickstarting in September. All right. Uh, That is on the page. If you go to, uh, if you Google Lunar Rush, Dead Alive Games, you'll get to their page and you can sign up for emails and uh, they will keep you informed of of when the page opens and everything else. Uh, But I only know September so far. Now I think Kickstarter, I start thinking extra goodies and I, we got to play Omicron protocol, a great deal, fantastic minis and whatnot. This Lunar Rush is not a miniatures game, but I can't imagine that the production is going to be anything less than stellar. But when I think Kickstarter, I start thinking of those little extra goodies, like the insert and the, and the sleeves and, and upgraded cards and whatnot. What do you know at this point, or do you know, being the, the designer of the game as opposed to the publisher, what can you tell us about stretch goals? Or are we there yet? Do we know anything about that portion of the of the Kickstarter? I can say, unfortunately, I do not. I know there is absolutely a desire to have, instead of just cubes, you know, some custom pieces that you get to push around because mm-hmm. that's a lot more exciting and, and really something awesome to have out of Kickstarter as opposed to the cubes. So I'm, I'm very hopeful uh, that will be a thing. I know they have been saving ideas and additional things to put into potential stretch goals. Sure. Oh, absolutely. So they are building up a, a quite interesting list, but that is uh, something I, I just don't know. So I'm not lying to you. You're just as excited as we are as to what could be coming out with this. <laughs> I, I am. I, I mean, I, I know, I know I and several other people backing at a, you know, at, at a, at a high level, whatever the highest is, but I don't know what it is yet. Um, <laughs> well, there is opportunity here. Let me ask you as the designer, you know, I think of those modules on the moon. And, you know, how some of the cards are, are set off to the right whenever you get uh, various upgrades and whatnot. There is a lot of space to get creative down the road. Let's suppose that this this goes gangbusters. The Kickstarter triples its goal. Let's keep those fingers crossed. Uh, Scott and I will be on board for, for the whole ride. There is room to add some cards, those gold cards, the community cards that anyone can purchase. You could tinker with that and add some things like you must have some ideas cooking upstairs for if they say, Hey, you know, Skippy, we need another card for this. We need to add this stretch goal. Has your brain been thinking like, okay, what's next? Or is it sort of let's deal with what's in front of us? Oh, so, I mean, one advantage of not being in and disadvantage of not knowing the details of what they're doing for the Kickstarter, my brain's able to go a million times ahead in, in the future. And if, if, you know, goodness, this goes gangbusters. Uh, absolutely. You know, some of the easy things are more gold cards and more wonders. I mean, that that's kind of the low hanging fruit, but sure. you know, it, 
this went really gangbusters. I have all kinds of ideas for expansions to add on to this. Everything from maybe the moon's the middle part and you go further. And so there's two markets you're dealing with. No one knows what comes after the moon. Right. Well, (laughs) we're not there yet as a civilization. I'll disagree with that, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) No way. Or, or, you know, may, maybe you won't have to have all human workers. Maybe you can do some uh, robot workers where they eat energy and you have to control them, but you don't have to house them. Or, you don't need I leaves mean, in that case. You need the, the green. You need, you need uh, energy. I like that. Yeah. You know, so, so I do have plenty of ideas. And, and if we're so fortunate to have this fund well enough that there's interest in expansions and doing more to this, I will be thrilled to do more to this game. Feels like the kind of game that could have it because the base game is so strong. You know, I don't want it to sound like, oh, what about expansions? Because I'm ready to move on. The base game is strong enough that I don't think it needs it. But boy, that road is open. It's it's wide open. It's ripe for it, too. It, it's fantastic. Fantastic. It's great to hear that you have those ideas instead of whenever everything goes gangbusters and then it's like, well, we need one. Uh, let's just add this, add that. That'll make him happy. But it's great to hear that you have so much passion behind this and all these ideas. I mean, I just want to get the main copy and enjoy that one for right now. But hearing you, I'm going to sit there with this little guy in the back of my head going, hey, you remember, there's more stuff out there. There could be more mm-hmm. stuff. And it's just, I just got to enjoy the moment. Well, and I think that the one of the key things, and, and Dead Alive is good about this, is if you go gangbusters, people add on more and more and more things that weren't really ready. So then it stretches the delivery timeline. And that is something they're very conscious of. They've talked to me about of, of you know, certain things we got to kind of figure out now, because if they hit a stretch goals, we don't want to have to delay delivery to go and actually do the work we could have already done on some of these things. So right. some of the ideas for additional gold modules or wonders or, or things like that, that probably will be stretch goals. We've already worked on what those are so that it's not going to delay the whole game. Cause we actually did well. Skippy, I get the feeling that I'm going to be buddying up with Will a good bit at Gen Con, and I know Dead Alive's got a booth ready. I already messaged Brendan and Bernie and said, hey, if you want me to demo Lunar Rush for some folks, I can invite podcast listeners to come and to come and play with me. So hopefully, but at the back half of this episode, I'll be telling folks when they can come and play Lunar Rush with me, learn it from, uh, from Hungry Gamer Will Brown and the level up guy that talks too much. <laughs> right now, I am scheduled to be there as well. At the booth at Gen Con, it'll be my first uh, con ever as a designer, uh, sitting and, and doing this stuff. So it, it's it's a little uh, uh, scary. I, I'm waiting for someone to just go, "Man, that's awful," and walk off. And if I cry in the corner, <laughs> no, or I can't something, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, you know, not everything's for everybody. So mm-hmm. so there's going to be somebody. I got to get ready. There's going to be somebody who hates it, no matter how great and I, and I think it is, and you guys think it is. There's going to be somebody who's not going to like it. I'm going to cry in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Skippy, we're going to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about where adventurers can go to find out more about Lunar Rush coming from Dead Alive Games. But first, Scott, it is time. Oh, I knew this time was going to be coming. This is like our favorite time in the whole show. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You got the stopwatch ready? I am all set here. Fantastic. Skippy, here's what's going to happen. We want to give you the opportunity to level up. Now, not everybody levels up, but we're going to give you the chance. It's a thank you for joining us on today's episode. We're going to give you eight questions, and I want the first answer that comes to mind. Don't overthink it. Are you ready? I am ready. Scott, you say when. Three, two, one, go. What's your favorite board game besides Lunar Rush? Uh, Search for Planet X. Can you name a player on the Pittsburgh Penguins? No. Oh, no. If I'm watching a holiday movie featuring Clark Griswold and Cousin Eddie, what movie am I watching? Uh, oh, um, oh man, they have come three on, of them. On. Yeah, Gris- Griswold's. Oh, up, up, up. National Lampoon's European Vacation or Christmas Vacation or yes. normal vacation. If you and Will got into a fight, who would win? Oh, I want to say him to be nice. The best drink to order at a bar is? Uh, Moscow Mule. Can you play an instrument? 
No. Do we talk about Bruno? What? <laughs> no. Uh, no, that, hey, that counts. We don't talk about Bruno. Aside from the Shredder, can you name a villain from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Oh, uh, uh, the, the rhino guy. Oh, I can't name him, though. Close enough. Got it. Hey, I think that's going to count, Scott. Uh, that is definitely a level up. That was pretty impressive. That was pretty impressive. I was starting to get really worried on the National Lampoons, but you know what? The the kindness of giving Will the he would win in a fight. Yes, you know what? Yeah. I feel like that was backhanded. I think in, in, in Skippy's mind, he's going, oh, I'd beat the hell out of him. <laughs> You're the older brother, so I'm sure you well, two. The problem squabble. is when we did fight, right? Uh-huh. I had four years on him, so that that really didn't. But what is four years now? Now it's in his advantage, frankly. That's a good right? point. <laughs> I'm over the hill. He hasn't gone there yet. So, well, Skippy, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us where can we find out a little bit more about Lunar Rush? I want to get get online. Give me some things I can put in the show notes for adventures to click on. If you uh, Google Lunar Rush and Dead Alive Games, that'll give you the first result. You also can find Lunar Rush on BGG and can get to the Dead Alive Games guys from there. Hungry Gamer has an excellent playthrough and rules explanation and review so you can see it in all its glory and and hear them uh, talk about it. So those are all good options. Adventurers, check the show notes. I'm going to have all those links there. So if you're listening to this on your phone, don't do this if you're driving, but you can just click the show notes, scroll down, and you can see where you can join our BGG forum. You can check us out on Instagram, but more importantly, that's where you're going to be able to click Lunar Rush, and it'll take you right to the BGG page. You can click Dead Alive Games. It'll take you right to their page. So you can sign up, get on the newsletter, get involved in this Kickstarter Scott, you're not going to Gen Con this year. You've got no, rooms. To I'm not. Okay, so the king won't be there. I will. I challenge you. You, me, Will Brown, and you know what? My friend Teacher Ryan, he is, he is the smartest gamer I know. I foresee a four-player Lunar Rush game at Gen Con. A, a, a meeting of the minds, if you will. Sound like a plan? Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Hey, once again, Skippy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry I'm going to miss out the meeting of the minds at Gen Con. Hopefully in the near future, we'll pass, we'll pass, and we'll get together and play some games here and have a great time playing Lunar Rush. Thanks so, so much for your time. Well, thank you, and I look forward to the chance when we get to play something. Wonderful. This is something that I thought about whenever we started this podcast. I never really thought that we'd get a chance to do it. It's great to talk to these designers and see what came in behind the idea of this. And once again, with Skippy, it was great talking to him and getting all the background to this, how this came about, all his other games that he has laying around that may come out sometime later. Uh, It it was just a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. It's really cool to see that, you know, you would think that designers would have a lot of crossover in their backgrounds. And they do, sure. And yet everybody's unique. You know, every game, like you get a little bit of that flavor. When I was in school, I I had to take an art class. I went to a liberal arts college. So you had to take a little bit of everything. (laughs) And I think I was in drawing or something. They said that like, oh, yeah, every artist, you get a little bit of their flavor, their touch. And you get that with these board games, don't you? Mm -hmm. Oh, most definitely. Because you only have so many mechanics that you can use. And each Mm -hmm. person takes a little bit of this and like... Every game that a person plays flavors what kind of game they want to develop. I suppose we know two Stephen Browns now. Oh, you're right. Oh, we need to try and figure out a way to get them both in the same room at the same time. There are probably a million Stephen Browns. (laughs) Well, I know that there are quite a few Scott Waltons because I started a Facebook group for just Scott Waltons. Really? Oh, yeah. And we just wish each other a happy birthday all the time. And it's hysterical when people are saying... Did you just wish yourself happy birthday? (laughs) And the thing that I love about this is there's a Scott Walton that married a Heather. No. So there are two Scott and Heather Waltons in the world. I think we've gotten long enough for today's side quest episode. Adventurers, if you're joining us today because you wanted to find out about Lunar Rush again, we invite you 
subscribe, go back, listen to some of our episodes. If you're with us regularly, thank you again. We'll look forward to next week. We've got a a big review game. It's going to be a jam-packed episode. We've got a couple of extra voices, and we're going to be able to do some meetup recap as well as tell you about what we're looking forward to at Gen Con. Plus, Scott, we've done 10 more review games. Oh, boy, it's that That time again. Adventures, we're going to give you our top five of the most recent 10 reviews. What a way to calibrate and find out what we truly love the most. Sounds good to me. So what do you say? Shall we wrap this one up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Adventures, thank you so much for joining us today. Scott, any final words to sign off the side quest? Uh, let's go back to my uh, toast book. Oh, May the roof above us never fall in and the friends below us never fall out. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.